Chapter Seven, Part One of the History of Standard Oil, Volume One by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Crisis of eighteen seventy eight. It was clear enough by the opening of eighteen seventy eight that Mr. Rockefeller need no longer fear any serious trouble from the refining element. To be sure, there were scattered concerns still holding out, and some of them doing very well. But his latest move had put him in a position to cut off, or at least seriously to interfere with the very raw material in which they worked. It was hardly to be expected, after the defeat of the Pennsylvania, that any railroad would be rash enough to combine with even a strong group of refiners. As for independent pipelines, there were so many ways of discouraging their building that it did not seem probable that anyone would ever go far. It was only a matter of time, then, when all remaining outside refiners must come into his fold or die. Mr. Rockefeller's path would now have been smooth had it not been for the oil producers. But the oil producers, naturally his enemy, he being the buyer and they the seller, had become in the six years before Mr. Rockefeller had made himself the only gatherer of their oil irreconcilable opponents of whatever he might do. The South Improvement Company they regarded rightly enough as devised to control the price of their product, and that scheme they wrongfully laid entirely at Mr. Rockefeller's door. Mr. Rockefeller had been only one of the originators of the South Improvement Company, but the fact that he had become later practically its only supporter, that he was the only one who had profited by it, and that he had turned his Cleveland plant into a machine for carrying out its provisions, had caused the oil country to fix on him the entire responsibility. Then the oil men's experience with Mr. Rockefeller in 1873 had been unfortunate. They charged the failure of their alliance to his duplicity. There is no doubt that Mr. Rockefeller played a shrewd and false game with the oil men in 1873, but the failure of their alliance was their own fault. They did not hold together. They failed to limit their production as they agreed. They suspected one another, and at a moment when, if they had been as patient and wise as their great opponent, they would have had the game in their own hands and him at their feet as he had been in 1872 for the sake of immediate returns, they abandoned some of the best features of their organizations and allied themselves with a man they distrusted. When that alliance failed, they threw on Mr. Rockefeller's shoulder a blame which they should have taken on their own. Another very real cause for their anxiety and dislike was that as the refiners' alliance progressed, the refiners made a much larger share of the profits than the producers thought fair. The abandoning of their alliance in 1873 had, of course, put an end to their measures for limiting production and for holding over production until it could be sold at the prices they thought profitable. The drill had gone on merrily through 1873, 1874, and 1875, regardless of consumption or prices. By the end of 1874 there were over three and a half million barrels of oil in stock more than twice what there had ever been before. Production was well to a million barrels a month, and prices that year averaged but $1.15 a barrel. For men who considered $3 a starvation price, this was indeed hard luck. Things looked better by the end of 1875, for production was falling off. By March 1876, 
stocks had been so reduced that there was strong confidence that the price of crude oil must advance. By June the oil city Derrick began to prophesy three-dollar oil and to advise oil men to hold crude for that price. In August three dollars was reached in the oil city exchange. It had been nearly four years since that price had been paid for oil, and the day the point was reached, August 25, the brokers fairly went mad. They jumped on their chairs, threw up their hats, beat one another on the back, while the spectators in the crowded galleries, most of them speculators, yelled in sympathy. Before six o'clock that day, oil reached three dollars eleven and a quarter cents. Nobody thought of stopping because it was supper time. The exchange was open until nearly midnight, prices booming on to three dollars seventeen and a half cents. It seemed like old times in the oil region, the good old flush times when people made a fortune one day and threw it away the next. Of course, refined oil went up steadily with crude. Refined reached twenty-one and three-eight cents in New York the day of this boom at Oil City. The day following the rise was one of the most exciting the oil exchange had ever seen. Never before, declared the Derrick in its report, was so much business done. From early in the morning until ten o'clock at night the exchange was crowded by frantic speculators. Their awful excitement was clear from their blanched faces and wild voices. Fully eight hundred thousand barrels of oil exchanged hands that day. The advance between the time the exchange opened and its close was over fifty-five cents. Refined in New York advanced in accordance with the market on the creek, closing at twenty-four cents. This went on for several days when a new element in the situation began to force itself on the oil men's attention. One of the chief reasons on which they based their confidence in high prices for crude oil was the fact that the foreigners were short of refined oil. It was the custom then, as now, for exporters to buy their oil for the winter European trade in the late summer and early fall. When the boom began, the harbor at New York was beginning to fill up with ships for cargoes. But to the consternation of the oilmen intent on keeping up the boom, the exporters were refusing to buy. They were declaring the price to which refined had risen to be out of proportion to the price of crude. More, they declared the latter a speculative price. Only once, they argued, had it touched four dollars, and the refiners were not buying at that price for manufacture. They were holding refined too high. It was early in September when the realization came upon the oil regions that a new element was in the problem, a veritable blockade in exports. As the days went on they saw that this was no temporary affair. They saw that Mr. Rockefeller's combination was at last carrying out just what it had been organized to do, forcing the price it wanted for refined. Day after day refined was held at twenty-six cents. Day after day the exporters refused to buy. It was not until the end of September, in fact, that they began to yield, as it was inevitable they should do, for the game was certainly in the hands of the refiners, and Europe had to have its light. The exporters began to see, too, that if they held off longer they might have to pay higher prices, for it was rumored that the Standard Combination was shutting down its factories, literally making refined scarce, while crude oil was piling up in Pennsylvania. With the yielding of the exporter exactly what they feared occurred. The price was raised. The exporters balked again. The matter began to attract public attention. 
the new york herald was particularly active in airing the situation and did not hesitate to denounce it as a petroleum plot the leaders were interviewed among them mr rockefeller mr rockefeller still held to his theory that to make oil dear was worthy of public approval they had aimed to control the price of oil in a perfectly legitimate way he told the herald reporter and the exporters would have to yield to their prices by the end of october new york harbor was full of vessels a mute protest against the corner and it was not until november that the exporters finally gave in and began to take all the oil they could get at prices asked which ranged from twenty-six to thirty-five cents and these prices were held all through the winter of eighteen seventy six seventy seven up to february twenty two they were held regardless of the price of crude for due to their utmost the producers could not keep their oil up to the corresponding price of refined according to the scale of relative prices then accepted twenty-six cents a gallon for refined meant five dollars a barrel for crude yet there was not a month in the entire period of this hold-up that crude averaged that price in december when the average price of refined was twenty nine and three eight cents crude was but three dollars seventy eight and an eighth cents a barrel the producers held meetings and passed resolutions cursed the refiners and talked of building independent refineries filled the columns of the derrick with open letters advocating a shutdown an alliance of their own restrictive legislation an oil men's railway and what was more to the point some of them supported with more or less fidelity the efforts to build up counter-movements noted in the last chapter the columbia conduit line the seaboard pipeline and especially the alliance with the empire transportation company attempted in the spring of eighteen seventy seven there seemed more hope in this last combination than in any other movement for they had faith in colonel potts and besides they were accustomed to seeing the pennsylvania railroad get what it wanted the defeat of the pennsylvania was therefore the heavier blow indeed the news of the sale of the empire pipelines to the standard was like the sounding of the tocsin in the angry and baffled oil regions it revived the spirit of eighteen seventy two but it was the spirit of eighteen seventy two with new dignity and a discretion such had never before been seen in the blatant region in every town from mckean county southwest to butler the oil towns hastened to organize themselves into a secret society little by little it came out that a producers union had been organized from all that could be learned it looked very much as if the petroleum producers union had come into existence to do business on november twenty one eighteen seventy seven the first meeting of the new organization was held the petroleum parliament or congress it was called this congress which met in titusville was composed of a hundred and seventy-two delegates it was claimed that it represented at least two thousand oil producers and not less than seventy-five millions in money it is certain it included the representative men of the oil regions those to whose daring hard work and energy the discovery and development of the oil fields as they were known at that time were entirely due for four days the congress was in session and it is a remarkable comment on the seriousness with which it had undertaken its work that although reporters from all parts of the country interested in oil were present nothing leaked out in december a second session of four days was held in titusville but no announcement of what was doing was made to the press indeed 
it was only as lines of action developed that the public became familiar with what the producers had resolved on in the days of secret session which they had held their resolutions had been eminently wise and they undertook their support vigorously and intelligently first and foremost they resolved to stand by all efforts to secure an outlet to the independent seaboard of the standard and the allied railroads two enterprises were put before them at once the first was what was known as the equitable petroleum company an organization started by one of the most resourceful and active independent men in the oil country one of whom we are to hear more lewis emery jr this company in which some two hundred oil producers in the bradford field had taken stock proposed to lay a pipeline to buffalo and to ship their oil thence by the erie canal they had acquired a right-of-way to buffalo and had capital pledged to carry out the project the second enterprise to come before the newly formed union was much more ambitious it was nothing less than a revival of mr harley's enterprise which had attracted so much attention in eighteen seventy six it was revived now by the three men who had been operating the columbia conduit line under a lease messrs benson mckelvey and hopkins who had been set free by the sale of that property to the standard their experience with the pipeline business had convinced them it was one of the most lucrative departments of the oil industry they believed too that oil could be pumped over the mountains and no sooner were they free than they took up mr harley's old idea and engaged the same engineer he had brought into the enterprise general herman haupt to survey a route from brady's bend on the allegheny river to baltimore maryland a distance of two hundred and thirty-five miles to both of these projects the general council of the union gave promise of support the demand for interstate commerce legislation was renewed at once by the union and in december e g patterson the head of the committee having the matter in hand prepared the first draft of an act which was put in formal shape by george b hibbert of buffalo counsel employed by the union for this purpose mr hibbert also prepared a memorandum of the law on the subject the bill prepared by mr patterson and mr hibbert was introduced into the house of representatives in may eighteen seventy eight by lewis f watson whose home was in warren county pennsylvania it was called into committee and came out as the reagan bill and as such was passed by the end of the year by the house but only to be smothered later in the senate at the same time that the effort was going on in washington for relief the legislature of pennsylvania was being besieged again for a free pipeline bill and an anti-discrimination bill both of these projects failed and the committee having them in charge said bitterly in its report to the union how well we have succeeded at harrisburg you all know it would be in vain for your committee to describe the efforts of the council in this direction it has been simply a history of failure and disgrace if it has taught us anything it is that our present lawmakers as a body are ignorant corrupt and unprincipled that the majority of them are directly or indirectly under the control of the very monopolies against whose acts we have been seeking relief there has been invented by the standard oil company no argument or assertion however false or ridiculous which has not found a man in the pennsylvania legislature mean enough to become its champion on every side indeed the producers hastened to protect themselves against the lord of the oil regions as mr rockefeller not inaptly was called on the completion of his pipeline monopoly 
that they were not merely alarmist in thinking that they must do something to protect their interests was demonstrated sooner than was anticipated. The demonstration was hurried by an unforeseen and difficult situation, a great outpouring of oil in a new field, the Bradford or Northern Field in McKean County, Pennsylvania. About the time that Mr. Rockefeller's lordship was realized, it became certain that a deposit of oil had been discovered which was going to lead soon to a production vastly in excess of the consumption as well as in excess of the then existing facilities for gathering and storing oil. If Mr. Rockefeller wished to keep his monopoly, he must, it was evident, enter upon a campaign of expansion calling for an immense expenditure of energy and money. He must lay pipes in a hundred directions to get the output of new wells. He must build tanks holding thousands of barrels to receive the oil. And all of this must be done quickly if rivals were to be kept out of the way. There was no hesitation on the part of the United Pipelines. One of the greatest construction feats the country has ever seen was put through in the years 1878, 1879, and 1880 in the Bradford oil field by the Standard Interest. It was a wonderful illustration of the surpassing intelligence, energy, and courage with which the Standard Oil attacks its problems. But while it was putting through this feat, it instituted a policy toward the producers which was regarded by them as tyrannical and unjustifiable. The first maneuver in this new policy hit the producer in a very tender spot, for it concerned the price he was to receive for oil. The method which prevailed at the time in handling and buying and selling oil was this. At the request of a well-owner connected with his pipeline, his oil was run and credited to him in the pipeline office. Here he could hold it as long as he wished by paying a storage charge. If he wished to sell his credit balance, as oil to his account was called, he simply gave the buyer an order on the line for the oil, and it was transferred to the account of the new buyer. The pipelines frequently had hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil in hand, and they traded with this oil as banks do with their deposits. That is, they issued certificates for each 1,000 barrels of oil on hand, and these certificates were negotiable like any other paper. Now the United Pipelines acknowledged itself a common carrier, and so was obliged to discharge the duty of collecting oil on demand, or at least within a reasonable time after the demand of its patrons. But in December 1877, after the monopoly was completed, they refused to discharge their obligations in the customary way. On the plea that they had not sufficient tankage to carry oil in the Bradford field, they issued an order that no oil would be run in that district for anyone unless it was sold for immediate shipment. That is, no oil would be taken to hold for storage. It would be taken for shipping only. At the same time, the standard buyer, J. A. Bostwick, decreed that henceforth no Bradford oil would be bought for immediate shipment unless it was offered at less than the market price. No fixed discount was set. The seller was asked what he would take. His offer was, of course, according to his necessities. Even then, an answer was not always immediately given. The seller was told to come back in five or ten days and he would be told if his oil would be taken. A feature of the new order, particularly galling to the oil men, was the manner in which it was enforced. Formerly the buyer and seller had met freely in the oil exchanges and their business offices, and transactions had been carried on as among equals. 
now the producers were obliged to form in line before the united pipeline offices and to enter one at a time to consult the buyer a line of a hundred men or more often stood during the hours set before the office waiting their turn to dispose of their oil it should be said in justice to mr bostwick that he was not the first buyer to take oil at a discount the producers themselves frequently offered oil at less than the market price when in need of money but mr bostwick was the first buyer in a situation to force them to make the discount regularly when these orders came few of the producers had sufficient private tankage to take care of any amount of oil here was the situation then to keep oil from running on the ground the producer must sell it but if he sold it he must take a price from two to twenty-five cents or more below the market the immediate shipment order was not an invention of the united pipelines it had been enforced more than once for brief periods by various lines when they found their capacity overcrowded by some unexpected situation in eighteen seventy two episodic among the horses so upset things in the oil regions that for a short time an immediate shipment order was enforced in eighteen seventy two when the pipelines were overtaxed by a great outpouring of oil in the lower field immediate shipment had been attempted but at that time there were still so many independent pipes struggling for business that the movement met no success now however the united pipeline had things its own way that they were not ready to meet the growing bradford production is plain from a study of the figures there were in the oil regions at the close of eighteen seventy seven according to the oil city derrick four million barrels of tankage there was on hand at this time three million one hundred and twenty seven eight hundred thirty seven barrels of oil but the empty tankage was in the wrong place in the bradford field where the daily production had suddenly increased from two thousand barrels in january to eight thousand four hundred and fifty one barrels in december there was only a little over two hundred thousand barrels of tankage in order to take care of the oil the pipelines began to make nearly all their shipments from that field and oil piled up in the lower region to the great dissatisfaction of the producers there as soon as the situation of the bradford field was realized both the united pipes and the producers began a furious campaign of tank building by the beginning of april eighteen seventy eight the tankage there had been increased to one million one hundred and fifty two thousand twenty eight barrels between april one and november one seventy tanks of from ten thousand to twenty five thousand barrels capacity were built in mckean county the greater number of these belonged to the producers according to the united pipeline statement there was under their control in the entire oil regions in october five million two hundred thousand barrels of tankage two-thirds of which belonged to producers but was held by them under a lease but oil poured from the ground faster than tanks could be built in six months that is by july eighteen seventy eight the daily output of bradford had become over eighteen thousand barrels an increase of ten thousand barrels a day over that of the previous december that it was a most difficult situation for everybody is evident there was but one way to prevent loss shut down the wells and stop the drill but this the producers refused to consider of course the price of oil went down rapidly so far did the production exceed consumption 
but why cried the producer when oil is already so low take advantage of our necessity and force us into competition with each other why enforce this immediate shipment they answered their question themselves and began then to make a charge against the standard which they continue to make today that is that it habitually meets the extraordinary expenses to which it is put by depressing the price of crude oil taking it out of the producer the bradford region demanded great investments therefore immediate shipment the producer pays the writer has no documentary proof that this is mr rockefeller's policy but there is no question that the oil region believes it is and this belief must be taken into account if one attempts to explain the long warfare of the oil country on him and his company it is a common enough thing to-day indeed to hear oil producers in northwestern pennsylvania remark facetiously when a new endowment to chicago university is reported yes i contributed so much on such a day don't you remember how the market slumped without a cause the university needed the money and so mr rockefeller called on us to stand and deliver a few months after immediate shipment was begun a new cause for dissatisfaction arose more or less private tankage leased to the lines had always been in existence it enabled the producer to carry his oil without paying storage and of course it was the business of the company to empty this storage within a reasonable time after the owner demanded it but in the spring the lines under the same plea of undercapacity refused to carry out this duty to the tank owner that is they refused to give him his tankage although he had sold his oil thus a owns five thousand barrels of tankage it is full he sells a proportion of it to mr bostwick and asks the united pipelines to run the oil accumulated at his wells but the united pipelines refuses on the ground that the line is full the loss to producers incident upon these orders was terrible all over the bradford field men saw their oil running on the ground though they offered to sell it at ruinous prices and though they might have thousands of barrels of tankage leased to the united lines yet they did not riot conscious that their own reckless drilling had brought on the trouble they cursed the standard and put down more wells but in the spring of eighteen seventy eight mr rockefeller and his colleagues instituted a series of maneuvers which shattered the last remnant of confidence the oil men had in the sincerity of their claim that they were doing their utmost to relieve the distressed oil regions and that their measures were necessary to hold the producers in check the pipelines began to refuse to load cars for the shippers who supplied the few independent refiners with oil the experiences of many of these independent men have been told before the courts for instance w h nicholson the representative of mr olin of new york a shipper of petroleum testified that in may eighteen seventy eight he began to have difficulty in getting cars at Olean one day Mr. Olin telegraphed to the officials of the Erie Road to know if he could get one hundred cars to run east. The reply came back, yes. About noon Mr. Nicholson says he saw Mr. O'Day, the manager of the United Pipelines, in which his oil was stored, and told him that he was waiting to have his cars loaded. Mr. Day at once said he could not load the cars. But I have an order from the Erie officials giving me the cars, Mr. Nicholson objected that makes no difference o'day replied i cannot load cards except upon an order from pratt nor would he do it the cars were not loaded for mr nicholson 
although at that time he had 10,000 barrels of oil in the United Pipelines and an order for 100 cars from the officials of the Erie Road in his hand. B. B. Campbell, at that time president of the Producers' Union, gave his experience at this time in the suit of the Commonwealth against the Pennsylvania Railroad. I never heard of a scarcity of cars until the early part of June 1878. I came to Parker about five o'clock in the evening and found the citizens in a state of terrible excitement. The pipelines would not run oil unless it was sold. The only shippers we had in Parker of any amount, viz. the agents of the Standard Oil Company, would not buy oil, stating that they could not get cars. Hundreds of wells were stopped to their great injury. Thousands more, whose owners were afraid to stop them for fear of damage by salt water, were pumping the oil on the ground. I used all the influence I had to prevent an outbreak and destruction of railroad and pipelines. I at once went over to the Allegheny Valley Railroad office and telegraphed to John Scott, president of the Allegheny Valley Railroad Company. The refusal of the United to run oil unless sold upon immediate shipment and of the railroad to furnish cars had created such a degree of excitement here that the more conservative part of the citizens will not be able to control the peace, and I fear that the scenes of last July will be repeated on an aggravated scale. That message I left in the office about seven o'clock in the evening. I got up the next morning before seven and received an answer. What would you advise should be done? John Scott. I answered, Will you meet tomorrow morning, which would be Saturday? On Saturday morning I came in on an early train and met at the depot Mr. Shin, then I believed vice-president of the Allegheny Valley Railroad Company, David A. Stewart, one of the directors of the road, and Thomas M. King, assistant superintendent. I spoke very plainly to Mr. Shin, telling him that the idea of a scarcity of cars on daily shipments of less than 30,000 barrels a day was such an absurd barefaced pretense that he could not expect men of ordinary intelligence to accept it as the preceding fall when business required, the railroads could carry day after day from 50,000 to 60,000 barrels of oil. Mr. Shin stated clearly that I knew that the Allegheny Valley Railroad Company did not control the oil business over its line, but was governed entirely and exclusively by orders received from the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. I then requested him to be the vehicle of communicating to the Pennsylvania Railroad officials my views on the subject telling him that I was convinced that unless immediate relief was furnished and cars afforded there would be an outbreak in the oil regions. After further conversation we parted. My interview with them was not as officials of the Allegheny Valley Railroad Company, but as representatives of the oil traffic carried and controlled by the Pennsylvania Road. On the next Monday I returned to Parker. After passing Red Bank, where the low-grade road, the connecting link between the Valley Road and the Philadelphia and Erie Road, meets the Valley Road, between that point and Parker, the express train was delayed for over half an hour in passing through hundreds of empty oil cars. In June another exasperating episode occurred, growing out of the attempts of the oilmen to secure independent routes to the seaboard. As we have seen, Two enterprises had been launched late in 1877 under the patronage of the Petroleum Producers' Union. As soon as the Equitable had acquired its right-of-way to Buffalo, Mr. Emery, the head of the company, his papers in hand, sought an interview with representatives of the Buffalo and McKean Road, and told them if they did not consent that the Equitable lay a pipeline to their road, 
and did not contract to carry the oil from that connection to Buffalo, the pipeline to Buffalo would be laid. After considerable negotiation, a contract was made with the railroad, and by June the new company was ready with pipeline, cars, and barges to carry oil to New York. But no sooner did they attempt to begin operations than the railroad, under pressure from the Pennsylvania Railroad, it was claimed, refused to carry out its contracts. The cars the equitable order sent to the loading track were refused. A sidetrack it had laid was torn up, the frog torn out. Everything indeed was done to prevent the equitable doing business, though finally a vigorous appeal to the law brought the road to terms, and in July oil began to flow eastward by this indirect route. No sooner did the Standard find that the equitable people were really doing business than they appealed to the railroads. A meeting of the representatives of the trunk lines was held in Saratoga in July, and the rates on crude eastward were dropped to eighty cents to meet the new competition. While this fight was going on against the equitable, all sorts of interference were being put in the way of the seaboard line between Brady's Bend and Baltimore. It was ridiculed as chimerical to attempt to pump oil over the mountains, and General Haupt was declared to be a visionary engineer with a record of failures. All the old stories retailed in 1876 were dragged out again. The farmers were told that the leakage from the pipeline would ruin their fields and endanger their buildings, and an active campaign to excite prejudice was carried on again in the farmers' papers. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh both fought the plan, the press and chambers of commerce opposing the free pipe bill at that time before the legislature, and the project generally. In Pittsburgh the opposition created almost a riot for the oil producers of the lower field, who had long bought their supplies there, now threatened to boycott the city if the pipeline was fought. So strong was the opposition that capital took fright, and the company found it most difficult to secure funds. This opposition to the pipeline was, of course, charged against the Standard and the Pennsylvania Railroad. Now, while the railroads were refusing cars to independent shippers, or if they gave an order for them the united pipelines were refusing to load them while the standard and the railroads were doing their utmost to prevent the equitable line doing business and were discouraging in every way the seaboard pipeline new routes which would take care of a proportion at least of the oil which they claimed they could not handle thousands of barrels of oil were running on the ground in bradford and two of the independent refineries of new york shut down entirely in order that a third of their number might get oil enough to fill an order. This interference with the outside interests, thus preventing the small degree of relief which they would have afforded, and a growing conviction that the Standard meant to keep up the immediate shipment order, at least until it had built the pipes and tanks needed in the Bradford field, finally aroused the region to a point where riot was imminent. The long line of producers which filed into the United Pipeline's office day after day to sell their oil at whatever prices they could get for it, and who, having put in an offer which varied according to their necessities, were usually told to come back in ten days, and the buyer would see whether he wanted it or not. This long line of men began to talk of revolution. Crowds gathered about the offices of the Standard threatening and jeering. Mysterious things, crossbones and deathheads, were found plentifully sprinkled on the buildings owned by the standard interests. More than once the slumber of the oil towns was disturbed by marching bodies of men. It was certain that a species of Ku Klux had hold of the Bradford region, 
and that a very little spark was needed to touch off the united pipelines. In the meantime, things were scarcely less exciting in the lower fields. The immediate shipment order was looked upon there as particularly outrageous, because there was no lack of lines or tanks in that field, and when in the summer of 1878 there was added to this cause an unjustifiable scarcity of cars, excitement rose to fever heat. End of chapter 7, part 1, recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.